Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Troy Lather, and I'm the site pastor here at West Bend at our West Bend site for Kettlebrook. I want to welcome you uh, to our Sunday gathering here. That was uh, Dave and Kayla Lazowski. Dave and Kayla are part of our Jackson site. Um, and actually, they've been praying for some years about what uh, God is doing in Hartford. And so they're actually part of a missional community uh, seeking to, to love and serve the people in Hartford. And you'll be hearing more about that as uh, we feel like God's leading us in that direction. But uh, just regular couple, really, who are seeking to have uh, Christ infiltrate, if you would, their marriage and their relationship and their family. And so they're kind of teeing up uh, this series that uh, we are in, This Is Us, which is a TV show that's on sort of right now around the family. And Mike kicked us off last week talking about where kind of we've seen the family going and where we, uh, we know that God wants the family to be going. And so this uh, Sunday, we are in week two. And this morning, I want to continue this series. And I, this morning, I'm primarily going to be talking to... The men in the room, okay? Now, gals, if you're here, I would, I would ask that you, although I'm primarily going to be speaking to the men this morning, I would ask that you would not check out, uh, because I think some of the things that I'm going to say, you're going to find them to be relevant as well, and they're probably going to impact you, and so, so hold uh, with me if you would. Now, knowing that we're going to be speaking to the men in the room, there's a few rules that I would like to lay forth for the next 30 minutes. Okay, Ready? Ladies, please, no elbowing. Okay? Uh, so if you hear something that a man in your life you think should be paying attention to, please don't go like that. That, that actually puts them on the defensive and it shuts them down. That doesn't help me or you. Okay? Uh, the look would also suffice as the same as an elbow. So don't do that. Don't be like, eh? Mm-hmm. You'd be listening to what Troy's saying right now. Okay? So please don't do that. Uh, men become defensive. They don't listen. Also, please don't say, you should write that down. Please don't do that. Okay? Um, First of all, there's a good chance they don't like to write or read. Okay? Uh, and, and, and secondly, men in general learn, and most men I know, learn kinesthetically and visually. And so what I've done intentionally is I've tried to teach this morning uh, that way, so that even if they don't write anything down, they're still going to be able to take some things away uh, this morning. Now, men, if you're in the room and you're a man, I'm going to also just... Uh, hone in a little bit just to say one of the primary uh, audiences of men that I want to speak to are the husbands in the room, but if you are not a husband, I, I, we're going to be talking broader than, than just husbandry, if you would. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to be a man, what it looks like to be a leader, and also a husband as well. So don't, don't, don't check out because these things that we're going to go through, I think, are going to apply to all of our relationships and not just the ones with our wives if we have them. Okay. So, and what we're going to do this morning as we look at manhood, marriage, and leadership is we're going to learn from a guy who didn't do any of them very well, okay? But I know as a man that guys can learn not just what to do, but they can also learn from what not to do, right, guys? We can learn from what not to do. Give you an example. When I was in high school, um, there was a bunch of us guys. I mean, there were some guys I heard about. This wasn't me. No, there were some guys... And, and so what those guys decided to do is during a volleyball game, a girls' volleyball game, we thought that we would go to uh, the, the girls' volleyball coach's house and toilet paper her house. And she had a daughter's on the team. And anyway, so we can... So toilet papering is... Do you know what toilet papering is? You just take toilet paper and throw it on their trees and stuff. And, and where I grew up, this was not something that you did to your enemies. I don't know if that's how it was in West Bend when you kind of grew up. But like where we grew up, you toilet papered your friend's house because it was just hilarious. And they'd have to clean it up and they'd, you know, they'd get you back. So anyway, um, we were friends with the volleyball coach and her family and all that. So we said, all right, during a volleyball game, we're going to go out and toilet paper her house in the middle of the game. 
So he grabbed us guys, maybe eight of us, I think, maybe ten, grabbed some toilet paper. Kids, don't toilet paper in his house, okay? You hear what I'm saying? Don't do that. It's a bad idea. Anyway, um, we grabbed some TP, we went out and started doing it. They lived in the country a little ways. And it was just on the heels of homecoming. And so Brian uh, was one of my buddies, and he's, what he did, we had decorated the gym with, with streamers. And it happened that year we were decorating this, uh, with metallic streamers. And so what he did was he grabbed some metallic streamers and said, why don't we bring these along to add to the festivities? We're like, awesome! And so we're out in the country just doing our thing, making this place look glorious. Okay? And Brian takes a streamer, metallic streamer, and chucks it, and it goes up over the power lines. And, and if I can just tell you, it is not a good idea to throw metallic streamers over power lines. I am very serious. Okay? Because they went over, and they, they kind of came back on. All of a sudden, like, you, like the box blew up, you know, and like all the lights in the surrounding countryside, like were out. I mean, like, and I think Brian, if he was close, could have died. Okay? So, like, don't do that. Okay, and we, so we did whatever, whatever else would do in that circumstance. When that happened, we ran away. We all got in our cars and we drove away as quickly as we could. We went back into town and we went back to the volleyball game like nothing happened. And we're sitting there and we're talking people are like, did you know like, the lights almost went out in here? They were like, like, like 10 minutes ago. I'm like, really? I don't know what that was about. That's crazy. So, so guys, we can learn from what not to do, right? So watch this, ladies, watch this. Let me ask you guys. So what lessons do you learn from that story? Guys, give me some. Don't be stupid. Don't use metallic streamers. What else? Don't get caught. See? See, See, gals, how we can learn. We can learn so many things from what not to do. Anyway, so what we're going to do is we're going to learn this morning of how not to be a man, how not to be a leader, and how not to be a husband from a guy named Xerxes. And if it helps you, Let's call him not Xerxes. Let's call him Jerxes. Okay? Can you guys say Jerxes? Jerxes. All right, here we go. So do that. We're going to look at the book of Esther. And so Esther is on page 354 in the Brown Bibles. So I'd encourage you strongly to grab one of these Bibles. We're going to read the first whole chapter together. I want you to follow along with me. Uh, Esther is on page 354. And so as we turn there to give you some context, we're talking about 475 B.C. So we're talking about 2,500 years ago-ish. What had happened was the, the Babylonian Empire had come in and they'd taken over uh, the, 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 the Jewish people, if you would, and they took them into exile in Babylon. And they were there for a while. And after some time, the Persians came in, they took over the Babylonians, and then they were able to send back, the Persian kings, some of them started to send back the people to the homeland of Jerusalem. But not everybody went back right away. And so there was still this Hebrew or Jewish community living in the capital uh, city of uh, Susa of the Persian Empire. Okay, and so that's kind of the context of the backdrop of where we're at. Now I want to give you, because we're not going to read through the whole story of Esther, I want to just give you the 30,000 foot Cliff Notes version of the whole book. So, because what we're going to do then is we're going to just zoom in and zoom out a little bit. So here's the Cliff Notes. There's a Persian king named Xerxes, okay, or Ahasuerus, bless you. Uh, he's called Xerxes, and we'll call him Xerxes. And he throws a huge party to, to brag about how wealthy he is. Just throws like a huge party. And then in the, in the midst of his party, he, he wants to brag about his trophy wife. So he says, hey, get, in, get her in here. She says, I'm not going, I'm not your trophy. Like, she says, no. He gets really upset and fires her as queen, hosts a beauty pageant to try to take her place, find a replacement. Okay? And a girl named Hadassah, a Jewish girl named Hadassah, her, 
uh, Persian name is Esther, wins. She becomes the queen. Now, on the side over here, there's something else going on. Esther has, a, has a, an uncle named Mordecai, and Mordecai is a Jewish man. There's, and then over here, the king has a right-hand man named Haman. And Haman thinks everyone should bow down before him. Mordecai's like, I'm not bowing down before you. You are not God. And so Mordecai, uh, Haman hates Mordecai so much, he tries to convince, and he does convince the king to, to create a decree where on a certain day, all the Jewish people can be killed and annihilated, kind of in a genocide, ethnocide kind of thing, wiped out. King signs it, and this is a bad deal for the Jewish people. Mordecai says to Esther, hey, you're the queen. You need to leverage your influence with the king to save our people. She does. The people are saved. Haman ends up dead instead of the Jewish people, and they bear, they're, they're able to defend themselves, and they then celebrate what's called Purim. And that's where Purim comes from. This is the book of Esther. Very, very brief, brief for you. That's what the overview is. Now, we're going to go just to chapter 1. We're going to zoom in a little bit and learn about Jerxes there and his men take some things away from this. So to do that, uh, you're already there. Let's uh, read this. I'm going to read this for you. Esther chapter 1. Before we do that, I want to pray. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the chance to come together this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Father, thank you for this example of what not to do. But not just the example of what not to do. Thank you for the example of, of what to do. The one that we come before our King, Jesus. Help us to grow in our hearts' affections for him this morning. And pray this in his name. Amen. All right, Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush of Egypt. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. And then the next few verses talk about how big the party was. It was huge. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine... He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, and then they're listed there, verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to him. Then they listened there who they were. Verse 15. According to the law, what, may, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes, speaking of himself in third person, that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memuken replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Oh, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women... And so they will despise their husbands. They'll say, well, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of the disrespect and discord. <gasps> Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than her. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest, I'm sure. Verse 21, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. 
So the king ple- uh, did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, and to each people in his own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. I'm sure. I'm sure that went well. So here we go. Let's take a look at this. Okay. Some scholars believe that the book of Esther is meant to be written and interpreted as a comedy. Literally, because if you look at the way the characters are presented, and you can kind of see it in chapter 1, right? You can kind of almost see, I mean, it's just like three stooges a little bit in here. You've got the buffoon guy who's supposed to be in a position of leadership, can't make a decision, you know, is not leading. Then you've got this strong, beautiful woman, confident, who's not going to put up with his baloney. This is like any sitcom of family that you've seen. In the la- I mean, this is King of Queens, Kevin James, right? right? This is, or any kind of sitcom of the family you've seen for, for the last couple of decades. That's what we find here. And then a the guy has his buddies come and hang out and whine about their girls, right? It's all in here. But there are a few things that, that pop out, I think, in chapter 1 that we can, as men, learn from this. Now, I want to be careful as we go forward because I want to make sure you understand the difference between what's called descriptive text and prescriptive text. Descriptive text means that we're reading something that's just describing what happened. Okay, we're just reading a, a narrative here. This is how it happened. It's not saying this is how you should do anything. There's text in the scriptures called prescriptive text. If you went to Ephesians chapter 5, you'll find the Apostle Paul writes a prescriptive text where he says, he says, husbands, this is a command, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's not a descriptive thing of what happened. And he's saying, here's what you should do. So I just want to make sure I'm clarifying for you. We're reading Esther. This is not a prescriptive text. It's descriptive. And yet, in the middle of this description, we can draw some things out. And the first thing that I think we can draw out is this. Ready, guys? Huge light bulb. Here it comes. It is hard to make good decisions when you're drunk. Okay? It's hard to make good decisions when you're drunk. Now, I, I say this and I say this carefully because I don't want to be legalistic about this. Although I've thought about it for, I was like, I think for 10 years I've never really said this from the front. Um, the scriptures allow us to, to drink. Okay? The scriptures do not prohibit, us, prohibit followers of Jesus from drinking. We know that Jesus drank wine. We know that Jesus was accused of being a drunkard, not because he drank, but because he hung out with those who did. And so we, I, some of you may have experienced um, Christian legalism where it's like you can't have any drinks. Now, here, I actually want to defend that a little bit, and here's why. The reason why folks sometimes fall into that legalism and saying you can't drink at all is because what they're trying to not do is to be a stumbling block, which, which the scriptures do say as well. So we have the freedom to drink, but what we don't want to do is we don't want to drink in front of a brother or sister who, who, are, who are, have a tendency towards alcoholism. Because then they may be like, oh, yeah, okay, let's just get drunk. Okay, and so we're to, to, to set aside our freedoms to do that for the sake of what's called the weaker brother in this specific case. And so that's why sometimes you'll see legalism to say, don't drink. That's why sometimes people don't drink is because they just, it's easier that way. They don't have to navigate whether they're messing with somebody or not. But, but scriptures are clear that we actually can partake in wine. What scripture also is clear on, though, is that we are not to be drunk. Right before Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right before that he says... Do not be drunk on wine, because that's going to lead to all kinds of stupidity and bad stuff and wrong fruit. But be filled instead with the Spirit, and you'll then produce the fruit of the Spirit. And so, and again, I was, I was studying this, and I'm like, I don't know if I even need to say this out loud. I'm like, I do need to say this out loud, and I need to say this out loud because there's a decent chance that some of us men out here, 
we're getting drunk. We're drinking and getting drunk. And so I don't say that if you're in this room and you do that. I don't say that to be like, shame on you. I'm not doing that at all. What I want to do is I want you to say, Jesus is like, no, no. I have the better wine. I have the Holy Spirit. And while you can drink, I don't want you to get drunk on wine because I want you to experience being drunk, if you would, to some extent, on the Holy Spirit. I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And you'll produce the fruit of the Spirit, okay? And this is, we're not, we don't want to be jerseys. You guys, if you read this and look, he gets drunk and he starts to make horrible decisions. So the first thing is we can't make good decisions when we're drunk. The second thing that we learn is that in the midst of his drunkenness, Xerxes does something. He objectifies his wife. Okay? You can kind of picture this. He's on his throne. I don't know if you guys notice, but I'm rich. But I'm not just rich, by the way. Did you guys know I have, like, a super hot wife? Her, her name's Vashti. Have you guys seen her? You should totally see her. She's beautiful. You know what? Why don't you go get her and bring her in here? And can you imagine Vashti getting that? Hey, uh, the king kind of wants to see you. Why? Well he's, well, he's drunk. He wants to show you off in front of his buddies. Oh, she just feels so honored. Just so cherished in that. It's no wonder she responds as she does. You know, I'm sure any woman in the world's like, oh, please, let my husband get drunk and just be like, what's up, hottie? Okay, like, no. That's not how it works. Okay? So, guys, here's, here's the second thing we can learn. We shouldn't objectify women, including our wives. We shouldn't objectify women, including our wives. And guys, I know that this is difficult in the context and the culture that we live in. If you don't know the stats, if you took all the money that's made by professional football, by professional basketball, by professional baseball, and professional hockey, all the revenues, and you added them up and combined them into a giant pot, it would still not be as much money that's spent on pornography in this country. Does that blow your mind? It should. And so I understand, men, I understand that it's not always easy to not objectify. I'll, I'll be honest, I find my wife, Stephanie, extremely attractive. And I know what she's like inside too, and so that makes it harder because like, I know what her heart is, and so her outer beauty continues to radiate more. And yet there's times where I find myself objectifying as if she was made for me and my pleasure. Just the other night at, at our small group remission community, I made some comments to, uh, in front of my brothers there about my wife. And I recognized that the, those were not really honoring to her. It was just me trying to say how beautiful she is. But it, 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 it wasn't right. And so I had to go back to my brothers and say, hey, you guys need to know that wasn't right. I'm sorry. And I didn't tell my wife that too. I said, she's, not, she's not made for me to objectify her. Okay? We, we, when we objectify women, we reduce them from, from the creation of God, this beautiful creation of God down to an object that's meant to be used for us in our pleasure. And so we can't do that. Now, men, by all means, what, do we need to proclaim the beauty of the women in our lives? Amen, we need to. We need to tell our wives, we need to tell our daughters, our sisters, our mothers. We need to tell them they're beautiful. When was the last time you told Woman that she's the woman in your life that she's beautiful and meant it and not said, Hey, you're a sexy. Okay, like that's going back to the objectify piece. That's why she's not buying it. And and, and guys, I know what you're gonna say, you're gonna say, Troy, I told her and she doesn't believe me. And I'm like, I know, I get it. That's something that Satan uses with women. They don't believe they're beautiful. 
But part of the reason why I think they don't believe when we say it is because we're objectifying them and they can tell. And so we have to be sincere. We have to say, let me, let me use different words. Honey, you are extraordinarily beautiful. You are stunning. I love you. Okay? So guys, we need to tell the women in our lives that they're beautiful. Okay? So let's keep going. What else do we see here? Number three, just from chapter one. Here we go, guys. Don't surround yourself with men who don't honor your wife in your marriage. I'll say it again. Don't surround yourself with men who do not honor your wife or your marriage. Okay? In verse 13, Vashti refuses to be the trophy wife. So Jerxes gets his cronies around and tries to figure out what to do with this rebellious wife of his. And you know what a real man would have done? A real man with some serious gumption would have went and said, uh, with all due respect, Your Highness, this seems like this is an issue between you and your queen. Perhaps, um, perhaps you need to talk to her, and perhaps you need to go and apologize for being a drunken idiot. Now, in their defense, he's the Persian king, they probably got their heads cut off for that. Like, so, but, but like, a real man's going to go and say, Hey, you know what, let me, let me actually, let me be for you and the us that's you, not just you. But here's what they do. Look at what these guys do. They, they take an issue that's about the king and the queen and his wife, and they make it all about them. This is what they do. They, they're like, oh, oh, man, if, when our wives hear that Vashti stood up to you like this, they won't put up with our baloney. That's what they say. They don't care about, about him and, and her. They care about them. They're like, how is this going to impact me? And so, guys, if you're going and you're having maybe a struggle with a, with a woman in your life, and you go to a guy and you share that, I want you to listen to how he responds. Because if he responds by listening and then starting to grumble along and be divisive between you and your wife or the woman in your life, not your guy. He's not your guy. You want to have guys that come around and say, you know what, let me call you up into servant leadership. Let me call you up into humility. Let me help you own what you need to own in this, whatever this is. A guy who's going to say, I care about us, which is the, the, the husband and wife relationship here, more than whatever is in for them. What, their selfish interests and needs, okay? So we can't, guys, do this. We have to surround ourselves with men who care about us. A couple uh, months ago, I was spending time with uh, a friend of mine, he is uh, not part of Kettlebrook. Just tell you that so you're not wondering if it's someone in the room here. And he was struggling with uh, some things in his marriage. They weren't huge things, but they were some, some things. And he was like, I don't know what to do. And so uh, I was listening and I was asking some follow-up questions to make sure that we were kind of on the same page. And after he shared for a while, uh, I said, hey, hey, brother, can, do you mind? Do I have your permission to give you a few of my thoughts on, on what you just said? He said, absolutely. And so I said, let me ask you this. When was the last time you asked your wife this question? Have you ever asked her, Honey, how can I serve you better? How can I serve you better? He's like, I've never asked her that. And I said, I think you're trying to serve her. What I'm hearing you do is you're trying to serve her. What you're trying to do is, honestly, I think you're trying to serve her in ways that work really well for you. And I'm not faulting you for it. You're trying. But I think what you should do is you should just ask her, Honey, how can I serve you better? And so he, he said that would be a great idea. You know what, I'm going to do that. So he went back to his wife at some point and did that. And two weeks later, he called and left a voicemail for me. I want to read the voicemail to you. I asked him if I could. You don't know who it is. He said, Troy, I want, I want you to know how much your encouragement to ask the question, how can I serve 
you to my wife and actually then listening and responding and doing the things she said, how much that is completely changing our relationship. I can't even describe how much more passion, love, and just the amazing feeling of intimacy and connectedness that we feel and just gratitude and appreciation we feel for each other we haven't felt for a while. This last week has been amazing. And I think I've greatly underestimated and greatly underserved my wife and her love language of acts of service. And so changing that has changed her and me. So anyway, very cool stuff. Thanks again. Love you, brother. That's cool. Isn't that cool? Don't spend, don't surround yourself with other men who don't honor your wife or your marriage. Okay? Or honor women. Now again, you're probably going to interact with men like that and you should be salt and light to them, but these are not your cronies. These are not guys you go to for wisdom and counsel. So, and out of that third point, just a very easy application. I want you to take a look at these next three questions in these slides. And I, did, I already wrote them in the bulletin, so you don't have to write them down. Let's look at this next slide. Ask your wife, ask the women in your life, how can I love Jesus better? How can I love and serve you better? How can I lead and serve our family better? Guys, have you ever asked... The women in your lives, those questions. And I'm not going to let the ladies respond because I don't want them to like clap and do like backflips in the middle of the gathering right now, but I, I'm pretty sure they would want to respond that way if you sat down seriously asked them that question and listened to what they said. So here's a homework assignment if you, if you choose to accept it, is to ask the women in your life those questions. Now there's, that's all just from chapter 1. Okay, that's just chapter 1, a few things we've gleaned from it. Now I want to take, give you two more broader observations from the whole book outside of chapter 1. And the first one is this. Guys, we need to be present and create proximity for the women in our lives. We have to create proximity for the women in our lives and we have to be present for them. Okay? I put this chair up here and I put this love seat up here for a reason because I wanted to kind of give this, this is a visual of sometimes I think what we do. Okay? Because you've got, you've got in the story, you've got Xerxes sitting on his throne, okay, with his golden scepter. That's right. That's what I think of this baloney. He was the Persian king. He probably needed to have some kind of boundaries and who could come in and whatever. But, but I want to show you, um, Joe, can you throw that next slide up here? Just first chapter, the kind of significance of the presence of the king. The nobles, this is chapter 1. The nobles and the princes of his province being in his presence, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, the seven princes of Persia and Medea who had access to the king's presence, and that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of the king. So there's like this idea of being present, and so he'd extend the scepter when he wanted. Now, guys, you probably have your lounge chairs. Okay? I like lounge chairs. I don't got nothing against lounge chairs. But I want you to think about this. Do you sit on your lounge chair and watch the game like you're King Xerxes? Like, oh, don't, I'm watching the game, leave me alone. I'll tell you when you can come. I'll extend the scepter to you. Okay? You, I'll tell you when you can have proximity to me. When the game's over, maybe, if you're lucky. Okay? Now, guys, I'm a man, so I understand that there's times that we need to have, like, downtime. Okay, I do get that. We need to have some space. I get that. But if, I want you to think about this picture and go, is this the picture that I have in my relationship with my wife? Because what I want you to do, if that's the case, I need you to think about getting out of your throne and taking a seat on the love seat. You know, there's a reason they call this a love seat. Because there's love up in here. Okay? 
This furniture, by default, necessitates us. There's more than just me. There's us involved. And so we have to create presence and proximity with the women in our lives. So I want you guys, I want you guys to think about in my relationship, is my relationship defined by the, the, the lounge chair or the love seat? And I want you guys to be thinking more in terms of love seat so you can create proximity. Now guys, when I say proximity to the women in your life, I know what you're thinking. That's not what I'm talking about. Although I will say, there's probably a correlation. If you can create authentic proximity by listening to her, by creating space for her, to hear her, to be heard, there's a chance it may flow over, if you would, into other realms of proximity. So we have to be in proximity. We also have to be present. And guys, I know that you can, you can do this. You can actually sit on this love seat and not be present. You know it's true. You can sit in this love seat and be like, aha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, no, I'm listening. I was listening. She knows. She's smart. She can tell you're not present. It's, it's possible for us guys to be totally present but not present at all. A couple of weeks ago, we were on our coaching cohort call with Jeff Vanderstel. And so he said, hey, guys, let's pray when we get, before we, so we get started here. And he got done praying. He said, guys... Why do we pray when we start a meeting? Is that like a Christian religious thing that we do? We just all kind of pray beforehand? He said, why do we do that? So we start throwing us by Jesus. Said, yeah, that's what good ideas. He goes, how about this though? One of the reasons he goes we pray is because we want to be present in the meeting that we're in now. He goes, I just got done with a meeting with a whole bunch of pastors from the Northwest. We're trying to figure out how God's going to saturate this region with the gospel. And it's a lot of stuff and it's a lot of weight. And he goes, I bet every one of you guys, there's five of us on the call, you guys all had some heavy stuff that was going on in either meetings before or meetings that are coming up. And what we need to do is we need to set this, this time aside and be fully present in it. And so we're asking, God, would you take care of what's behind me and take care of what's before me so I can be right here, fully present? And I heard him say that and I was like, bing! Oh, that's so relevant. That's so relevant. Just uh, about a month and a half ago, I was, uh, I was in the office and I was doing some logistics, uh, logistical work with my sister in Christ, Bridget File. She's on our staff team. And so we were having a dialogue and, uh, and, and Bridget was talking and I started walking away towards my office. And Bridget goes, hey, Troy, can you not walk away from me while I'm talking to you? And I was like, oh, my goodness. My body just did what my mind was doing. My body walked away because my mind had already exited the conversation and Bridget totally called me on it. And I, I said, Bridget, sister, thank you. Thank you for saying that and having the courage to say that because I was not honoring you. I wasn't listening to you because I was checked out and I was in another conversation. Already in my head, I was on to the next thing. I was not fully present with her. We have to be present, guys. And so what that might mean for you, very practically speaking, one of the things I have to do is I come home to four children, sometimes six neighbor kids on top of that. And my wife. And so I will literally stop in Villa Park on the way in and just like pull over the side of the road and be like, Okay, Lord. A lot of stuff back here. I've got a elite meeting tonight I've got to prep for, but then I'm going to go into this jungle. And I need to be present because I want my kids to be able to say, when they say, Daddy, watch me, that I can actually watch them. And so I have to pull over and I say, God, please give me the strength to do that. Guys, you may have to do that. And sometimes when you walk in, you may have to tell your wife, you need to say, honey, I'm still not there yet. I, need five, I just need five minutes somewhere, maybe in the bathroom locked up. I don't care. I'll sit on my throne. I just need to be able to be fully present. I'm not there with you yet, so I need to be giving me space. Just quickly give me five minutes. We've got to check out and then so we can check back in. 
Or maybe you can even get that love seat and say, honey, can we just take five minutes? I've got something I want to share in my heart from my day. Boy, you guys do that when you're killing like five birds with one stone, okay? But we've got to, be, we got to be, be present. We have to be fully present, and we have to create proximity, okay? And then going back to what Jeff was saying, he, went, he always takes it a step further, which is amazing. He says, guys, when we're fully present, what are we doing? And we're like, uh, being fully present? He's like, we're demonstrating the gospel. Like, what do you mean? He says, guys, when you're fully present with the people that you are with, you are demonstrating, a, you're giving a sort of a glimpse of the God who is fully present. That You believe in a God who is present, who had a son named him Emmanuel, God with us, so God would be with us, present. We believe in a God who then sent his spirit to dwell in us. That is a demonstration of the gospel. So think about this. Every time that we can be fully present with the people that we're with, we can be demonstrating the good news of Jesus Christ to them by being present. Guys, are we present? And are we creating proximity? One more thing. One more thing worthy of mention. If you look at the book of Esther, as we close, I want to make this point. There is no mention of God in the entire book of Esther. Not one time. It's the only book in Scripture. There's no mention of God in the entire book. Why is that? I wonder why. Perhaps it's because Jerxes thinks he's God. Perhaps it's because Jerxes thinks he is God. He sits on his throne. He extends his gold scepter because the world revolves around him. The women have to take a year of beauty treatments to get into his presence. He's got to extend his golden scepter because he thinks the world revolves around him. Okay? But anyone reading this story from the outside and looking in will laugh at that. He is a joke. The idea that he's really God, okay? And yet I wonder sometimes, guys, if this is not how we live. Do we not sometimes live like the world revolves around us? Of course, you know, we don't have a throne, but we make one. We don't have a scepter, but we got this, you know? We don't, we don't have a harem, but would we if we could? I mean, think about it. It, it. If there's no mention of God in your story, in your house, is it because you think that you're God? And if that's the case, it's a joke from everyone else outside looking in. If you're leading your family as if you're on the throne, that's a comedy. Guys, if you're leading your family like you sit on the throne, it is a comedy. A laughable thing. Because we think we're God. That's why we get drunk. To please ourselves. That's why we objectify. To please ourselves. That's why we surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear. That's why we don't serve women in our lives. And with this posture, we're never going to be real men. We're never going to be real husbands. We're never going to be real leaders. Until we're willing to submit to the authority of the true king. Until we're willing to take off our own crown and get off our own throne. And give it to the one who really deserves it. Will we not be servant leaders? There's no mention of God in the book of Esther. And let me tell you this. Every single page screams his name. Every single page screams his name. Because every page causes us to desire a true king. Every page causes us to long for a true husband. Every page causes us to yearn for a good leader. And Jesus told his disciples, he says, Hey guys, all scripture is about me. All of it. All the Hebrew scriptures is about me, including Esther. Why? Because Jesus is the perfect king that, that Jerxes could never be. 
Jesus is the true husband for his bride, the church. He's the perfect leader who is perfectly sovereign. The one who is never drunk but completely filled with the Holy Spirit. The one who uh, doesn't objectify us because he made us. The one who, even though he is surrounded by those who didn't honor each other, didn't, he did not make selfish decisions. The one who is not just king, but he is a servant king. The one who made proximity with God the Father possible by giving his own life. And the one who, though being in very nature, God took on the form of a servant so that he could be present with us, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. He is fully present with us and in us through the Spirit, the perfect man, the perfect king, the perfect husband. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen? And men, until we see Jesus for who he is, we will never be the men we were supposed to be. But when we do... When we see Jesus for who he is, as the true king, as the perfect husband, then we will become the men we were made to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son as king, as husband, as man, so we can learn from him. We certainly can learn from Jerxes as well what not to do. But in the midst of that, we pray, Father, you would draw us back and away from Xerxes into the perfect model. The, one, the only one who's inspiring to our hearts. The only one who lifts us up, calls us into servant leadership, calls us into humility because he demonstrated it and gave his life so we'd be the men that honor and cherish and love for the sake of the kingdom. And we pray it in the name of the one who did all that, the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And all God's men and women said, Amen.